Hello, and welcome back to the UCLA Housing Voice podcast. We are on episode number five. I'm Shane Phillips, Housing Initiative Project Manager for the UCLA Lewis Center, joined by co-host Dr. Mike Lenz, Associate Professor of Urban Planning and Public Policy at UCLA, and Associate Faculty Director of the Lewis Center. The Housing Voice podcast is about bringing timely and important housing research to a broader audience. We're here to talk to the researchers themselves about what they've learned, what it means, and how we might apply their findings to make our cities more affordable and more equitable. If you haven't already subscribed to the podcast, please do. You can find us just about anywhere. And be sure to give us a rating if you like the show. I'm not going to say rate, review, and share. Just rate. That's my one ask of you today. Maybe next week it'll be review. I'm trying a new strategy here. Just ask one small thing at a time. This time it's a rating. So simple. We appreciate you. With all that out of the way, let's just get started. Today we're joined by Dr. Evan Mast. Evan got his PhD in economics from Stanford and currently works as a staff economist for the Upjohn Institute for Employment Research, headquartered in Kalamazoo, Michigan. Uh, Evan has worked on a couple of really fascinating papers that fit into a fast-growing body of research on how market rate housing development impacts the housing market at a neighborhood level. Uh, so thank you very much for joining us to talk about your work today, Evan. Yeah, thanks for having me on. This is fun to uh, get to see you guys and, you know, fill some of that void that we are missing from not having conferences. Yeah, and we've got, as always, Dr. Mike Lenz with us, another connection to the Midwest here. Hi, Mike. Hello, Shane and Evan and listeners everywhere. So to start off, Evan, can you tell us a little bit about your background? I'll admit, you know, I wasn't familiar with the Upjohn Institute before reading your work, so I'm curious how an employment research institute ended up working on housing. Yeah, so uh, I'm an urban economist. So I do some stuff besides housing. I'm kind of interested in all sorts of things about, you know, cities and how they grow and decline. How do they attract businesses? How do taxes play mm -hmm. into this? How does municipal governance, you know, affect various things? And uh, the Upjohn Institute does a lot of work on regional economics and, and local policy. That's sort of something that it focuses on. In addition to employment, the thought is, oh, you know, we're out in Michigan, so let's try to do state and local stuff right. and uh, not compete with D.C. on federal stuff. So, yeah, I think I fit in pretty well to that wing of the Institute. But, yeah, it's not I'm not doing unemployment insurance or kind of what you might think from the name of the organization. Gotcha. And before we talk about your papers I'm going to take uh, my own prerogative here and, and give a little background and just start. So so these papers are about market rate housing development, what the impacts are at the neighborhood level. So we should start with just what we mean by market rate housing for anyone who's, that's not already, already clear for. When we talk about market rate housing, we're talking about housing that is rented or sold at whatever price people are willing to pay. So that's in contrast to income restricted housing, what we sometimes call affordable housing, uh, that sets a ceiling on how much rent can be charged and how much a household uh, can earn to be eligible to live in it. And as a general rule, market rate housing is built for profit and without subsidies. And affordable housing is built by nonprofits with public subsidies. And because the cost of land and construction is very high in places like LA, both market rate and affordable housing are really expensive to build. But because market rate housing doesn't receive any subsidies, it has to charge quite a bit um, to turn a profit. And we have a lot of very strong evidence based on decades of research that building housing helps keep prices under control 
at a metropolitan level, at a regional level, even if that housing is relatively expensive market rate housing, if there's a lot of demand to live in a metro, in the metro area, and we don't build enough housing there, we end up with a growing number of people and dollars chasing too few homes, and the people willing to pay the most are the ones who get to stay. Prices rise as a result. Um, Before I continue, because I have even more to say, unfortunately, Evan or Mike, anything you want to add to what I said so far? Sounds like a good summary to me. Cool. Yeah, I mean, housing markets are regional, right? And so it's 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 fine and great that we have a lot of evidence that, you know, building more at that regional scale has uh, positive effects on affordability, but we also don't build regionally necessarily. We don't administer um, zoning and, and other mechanisms to build on a regional scale. And like these decisions are all are often very hyper local, right? right? And right. so it's really important that we know this this neighborhood story. Yeah. And that is a that's a good lead in. So what remains an open question in the research is how market rate development affects housing prices at the neighborhood level. So with you know down the street, across the block, whatever, um, there's a concern, and I think this is a valid concern, that if you build a new market rate building in a neighborhood, especially a poor or working class neighborhood, that you may be doing something positive for regional or metro area affordability, but actually harming in some way that local community. You're adding supply and that's helping relieve the pressure in the overall market, but you're also changing the community in a way that might make it more desirable um, and cause more people to want to live there or signal to the existing landlords that this is an up and coming neighborhood. And you know, as a result, they might want to raise their rents. There's a supply effect that lowers prices by increasing supply and a demand effect or amenity effect that raises prices by making the area, the nearby area, more desirable. And the question is, which of these two effects is stronger at that neighborhood level? Answering that question empirically requires data on the rents of individual units and buildings. And until recently, that wasn't really available to us. But new data sources and the use of things like Craigslist ads and Zillow data have made that possible. And that brings us to Evan's work. So as I mentioned, Evan, you actually have two papers that we're talking about here today, one authored just by you and the other co-authored with uh, Brian Asquith and Davin Reed. The latter of those two papers is titled Supply Shock versus Demand Shock, The Local Effects of New Housing in Low-Income Areas. And I'd like to start with that one because as the name suggests, it deals directly with this supply effect versus demand effect question. So can you just start off by giving us an overview of what you and your co-authors studied and what results you found, starting maybe with the impacts on rents? Yep. Yeah, so that was a really good uh, description of the setting and kind of the question that we're trying to get at. So our goal was to test this idea empirically, see, you know, do big new apartment buildings in low-income areas actually kind of counterintuitively raise rents nearby? Or is it the opposite story? We see, okay, well, we added supply and now now rents are going to go down. So uh, what we did is we got together uh, a sample of big apartment buildings, which are over 50 units. So that's big, but not huge. You know, that could be like a four or five story building in, in big cities. So I think there are 13 cities in our sample. And you should think of kind of roughly the 13 biggest in the U.S. And uh, our results suggest that uh, rents do not seem to go up faster near these new buildings. 
So uh, that doesn't mean the new buildings make rents nearby actually go down, like from $2,000 to $1,900. It means that rents nearby seem to go up more slowly than in, you know, a comparison group or a similar set of apartment buildings. Right. So, So to do that, we kind of take this, like, treatment control approach where we say, okay, we're going to compare the area within a couple blocks of the new building to some areas that seem like they're similar and and where apartments should be, you know, following similar rent trajectories. So uh, the the two kind of control groups or comparable areas that we use, uh, one are apartments that are maybe like a five to 10 minute walk from the new building so slightly further away than the treatment group that we think is most affected. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the other group are apartments near sites that were later developed into big new apartment buildings. Okay. So the idea is that these are going to be similar to the area near the new buildings because, look, one's in the same neighborhood. The other one was apparently similar enough that it eventually got a similar type of building. And when we do this comparison, at the end of the day, we find that the rents in our treatment group um, are about 5 to 7% lower than the rents in those control groups. Mm-hmm. So it seems like, yeah, these these buildings actually do lower the rents nearby. It's not this counterintuitive story, at least on average. Right, right. And you note that compared to neighborhoods without a new development, the neighborhoods where market rate construction occurred generally experienced faster growth in the college-educated share of the population and incomes prior to the project coming in. Can you talk about how you interpret those findings? I feel like that's a really important uh, part of this, actually. Yeah, I mean, probably the simplest way to say it is that, you know, these new buildings are following gentrification. They're not leading it. Mm -hmm. And I mean, I I think for one, that explains part of our findings, these buildings are going into areas that are already changing. So this marginal change of adding whatever it might be, 80 new high income people isn't such a huge deal that it kind of changes the neighborhood's uh, position and, you know, in the metropolitan area hierarchy or really changes the businesses that are looking to locate there. And I mean, I also think this makes sense. We're talking about, you know, pretty big buildings that, you know, take some capital to get off the ground that requires some some time to get planned and approved and also, you know, the a developer has to be able to get high enough rents to actually cover the cost of construction. So they're going to need an area where there's some indication that they can get rents like that. Yeah. So, so yeah, I, I guess I just don't, I think that this is sort of an intuitive part of the paper. And I also think that it highlights that we're studying one type of building in this paper. It's, you know, big new rental apartment buildings. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a reasonable thing to look at because... This is where the issue comes to a head. A lot of the time, it's like you go out to a community meeting or reading the local newspaper. Um, and a lot of the time, it's the type of building that people have in mind when they're pushing for upzoning or transit-oriented development or something like that. But, you know, we do want to note that maybe it's a different story for a small-scale renovation or if you put up a duplex. You know, that's not what we study. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And <clears throat> this is really interesting. I, you know, I think like... There's a there's a couple of things that, that we're hitting on here. I think one is this fact that people see cranes and they see big buildings and somewhat simultaneously they hear about their rent going up, right? And so there's that there's this kind of temporal causal chain that we're really trying to understand like whether we we really have this right or whether people generally have this right or wrong. You know, is it 
the crane that really has anything to do with it? Is it the big building that has anything to do with it? Or is the big building, of course, a response to these these rising rents or the hope of rising rents if you're a, a developer? Um, and then the other, maybe a more pointed question for you, Evan, which, you know, I know like the methodological challenges in, in knowing this are are huge. And I, I don't think you can fully speak to this, but you're very smart on this issue. Like, do you think we probably have like both a supply effect from a building like this and a potential demand effect from a, a building like this? You know, and that one way to interpret your findings is that this supply effect, which should reduce prices, is uh, overcoming this demand effect that people think will increase prices because this this new building provides something to this neighborhood in terms of new residents, a signal for new demand. Do do you have any any thoughts on like that comparison? Yeah, I think it is a really good question. If these positive amenity effects actually exist, is there actually right, kind of right. this push from the new buildings? Like, oh, there's you know, now there's going to be a grocery store, there's going to be whatever type of restaurant. The only direct evidence on this I know is from Shouty Lee's paper on New York. And she finds something about more, uh, maybe restaurant permits, it might even be like sidewalk cafe permits, I don't know what she was able to access. But some measure of that does go up near new buildings. Mm -hmm. So she finds Mm -hmm. some evidence of an amenity effect. I can tell you that when people want to push back on this paper, a lot of time, what they'll tell me is, oh, your negative effect is because this building has negative amenities and people don't like it, <laughs> <laughs> which might be true. I don't like it's interesting that like sort of the one thing we could say about these big buildings is that like they they excite people's emotions like yes. <laughs> they feel one yes. way or the other about them. Um, but they feel strongly. Yeah. And I mean, to some extent, it's I don't know, I guess if. If there were, you know, a lot of rich people hankering to move to the area near a big new building, you might expect to see more excitement about this type of building when it's proposed in a high income area. Mm -hmm. So all that's to say is I agree. It's an empirical question, and I'd be interested to hear more research on that particular angle. There's also, correct me if I'm, if this is not really related, but Rebecca Diamond's paper where she looked, I think, at affordable housing specifically and found actually that prices near those developments went up. Is that, am I remembering that general finding correctly or is there more to it? There's a little bit more to it. So she finds that when you put a a low-income or LIHTC building into Mm -hmm. a low-income neighborhood, that tends to increase home prices nearby. Mm -hmm. Whereas you have the opposite effect in a high-income area. Gotcha, gotcha. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Since since we've we've now brought up Shaudi Lee, um, this is the the second firm and NYU firm and center graduate that we've discussed in addition to Davin Reed, and I need to note that uh, or give a shout out to Davin. He's fast becoming the best housing researcher that graduated from McAllister College and NYU with a public administration PhD. Um, overtaking me, um, <laughs> and maybe there's others that I don't know about. But good job, Davin. <laughs> There's one other element of this paper that I think, uh, well, there's there's several, but one that we haven't actually talked about, but it's in the title, is that you're looking at low-income areas. Can you tell us a little bit more about that aspect of this, just how you're specifically looking at the effects um, in, in these communities? Yeah. So I, I think one 
I don't know if I still have this weakness, but three years ago when I was coming up with these papers, I think it was sort of a weakness that I was really like directly responding to the public debate. So, and I was like, okay, mm. this debate is about low income areas. That's what I want to write about. Mm -hmm. um, mm. I share that weakness. So that's, that's most of what I do. <laughs> right. So that's why I started off working on it. Um, I do think that this amenity mechanism is more plausible in low income areas than high income areas, because you can just sort mm -hmm. of see this argument like, oh, this purchasing power comes in, there's just more gross income in the neighborhood. And now like, someone's going to set up a business that can take advantage of that income. And it's going to be the snowball effect. Um, right, so, so that's right. why I decided to focus on, on that. I mean, I think that a really interesting thing to do, and I don't know how to do it, would be to identify really precisely like the types of places where you would expect a new building to actually raise rents. I don't think it would actually correspond exactly to low income areas. I think it would have a lot to do with like buildings that are somehow kind of changing like the physical form of a city. Like imagine there's a railway viaduct between, you know, a wealthy neighborhood and a working class neighborhood and like some new buildings coming along that and kind of like span that divide. And now like you've mm -hmm. breached the duct and you can bleed over into this new area. Like that stuff sounds mm -hmm. even more plausible to me than this idea of just increased purchasing power. Um, I don't know exactly how to how to get at that in a systematic way. I can point to things where I think it's happened, but I, I don't know how to do it in general. Yeah. Yeah, that, I mean, that reminds me of, of some work uh, that Dan Hartley um, and some others were involved in where, you know, they, they really find strong evidence that your most gentrifiable or gentrifying neighborhoods are really most likely to be next to neighborhoods of, of high income or more established neighborhoods. So, like, I mean, maybe that's kind of what you're talking about, right, where these these border, you know, there were once were borders, whether they were you know, cultural, social, or physical. And, you know, the forces of change kind of often bleed, or sometimes, and perhaps, you know, bleed uh, over or across those borders. And certainly in unpredictable ways, of course, which is, which is what makes so much of this policy so hard. Totally agree. And to get into more critique here, just to like, poke at things as much as we can, the Zillow data in any data you pick for this kind of thing, I think there are questions with it. You used Zillow listings to determine the rents of nearby buildings. And I think that Zillow, from what I understand, can be sort of skewed somewhat toward the higher end of the market. So you're not necessarily capturing all of the housing units. Um, how confident or how do you know that what you found here based on the data that was available to you is really representative yeah, so I, I, I agree. I think this is a general problem with rents data. I think that we mm -hmm. need, and I, I don't, I mean, maybe it's just, you know, you need the, the government to come in and run some kind of survey that gives you a better measure of rents. But I think like a, a really reliable granular source of, of rents would be a really helpful thing for the literature to have. For the listeners, the UCLA Lewis Center recently hosted an event on rental housing registries featuring... Yes. Assemblymember Buffy Wicks and Catherine Bracey of the Tech Equity Collaborative. We'll make sure to put that in the show notes, but that would be one way to uh, really universally capture rents in a community. Go on, Evan. Yeah, that sounds great. We act I just learned we have a similar thing in Kalamazoo. You've got registered landlords, and I don't know if the city mm -hmm. collects rents, but they could. Yeah, yeah. So anyways, to actually get to your question, 
I think like the Zillow rent probably does skew a little bit high. I don't think it's like divorced from the average in the in the neighborhood. Mm-hmm. We do a little more to like show that formally in some revisions that we're doing to the paper. So hopefully you'll be able to see that soon. But I want to say it's numbers. I don't want to give you anything off the top of my head, but it's sort of, I guess a, a way to put it is like the mean and the Zillow data is probably not going to be that far from the mean and the overall data. Gotcha. Is there a segment that's just not showing up in the Zillow data? Maybe. And that's why we kind of bring in this other, we bring in some migration data and try to bring it in, you know, an alternative way to measure what the effects on that part of the market might be. Yeah. And that is another good transition um, because you did look at migration. And I think this is a really useful complement to the other findings in the paper. So what you found was that in addition to these rent effects, where new development occurred, the people who moved within 250 meters of the new building into some older existing housing, um, they came from slightly lower income neighborhoods than the people who moved into homes 250 to 600 meters away. So that control area. And so this seems to support the idea that the new developments are lowering nearby rents. So it's, it's complementary in that sense. And, and the reason I think is the people moving into those nearby buildings are coming from lower income neighborhoods. So it just kind of naturally follows. Am I understanding that aspect of this correctly? Yep. Yep. That was the idea of it. Uh, one, one thing was just to use another measure, use another data mm-hmm. source to see if something's changing. And the other benefit to the, uh, to the migration data is that we can sort of directly access the cheaper segment of the market. What do you mean by that? So we can look at how many people move into the nearby area from like a really low income neighborhood. Mm -hmm. And that tells us something. I mean, to get into the weeds, we can't do that with our rent data because we don't observe the same unit over time. So we can't identify what is like an initially cheap uh, apartment. So, but with the migration data, we can do it because we can say, okay, you moved in from uh, a census tract with median income below half of the average in the metropolitan area. And that's right, where and right. we find some increases in the number of people moving in from those areas. And that's why we say, like, we think this is probably lowering rents throughout, you know, throughout the market, not just at the top. Yeah. If you had found that people were moving actually from higher income neighborhoods into the, the nearest area around these buildings, that would be sort of contradictory to your rent findings it would you know it wouldn't invalidate them but it would cause you to question them a little bit more probably yeah yep definitely and so these results can lead us into that your solo working paper which is titled the effect of new market rate housing construction on the low-income housing market which sounds very similar um it, it focuses more narrowly on migration uh on migration and i think it helps explain why development can lower rents um, at a higher level, say for the entire city or metro area. And it centers around something that you call the migration chain, which I found really, really interesting. Can you explain what that is and what it reveals in your research? Yep. I've, I've tried to write about this multiple times and putting it in writing clearly is very challenging. So I think having it verbally will be helpful. Sure. So, uh... or twice as challenging. <laughs> or twice, yes. <laughs> I've, I've talked Hopefully about you got it. Some notes. <laughs> I've I've trotted this paper around a few places, so I've had some practice. Um, but it's funny that you mentioned the title because I spent a lot of time trying to figure out how to title these two papers differently so that people could tell them mm. apart. <laughs> mm. 
apparently I could have done better still. Well, you've got the supply effect and the demand effect in one. So at yeah. least it clarifies that much. Right. So, so yeah, the, the idea of this paper is to show how new units can affect the broader housing market, even when those new units are really expensive. Mm-hmm. And the idea is that the sequence of moves or this migration chain can make this link happen. So I think the easiest way to do it is to just like talk through an example with really like concrete numbers. And I tried to guess LA numbers. I'm not sure. These would be bad San Francisco numbers. (laughs) We're going to find out. Yeah. So, all right. Suppose you put up a new building and a one bedroom goes for about 3000 a month. Sure. All right. Those exist (laughs) for sure. Yes. (laughs) So, so that's pretty expensive. You know, if you use like our normal affordability thresholds, you, you need like a household income of 120000 to afford that. Mm-hmm. So that's like twice the national median. But, you know, suppose the person who moves into that building comes from a different one-bedroom apartment, and that one-bedroom apartment was like $2,200. Mm-hmm. So when that person moves out, that's going to open up a vacancy in that cheaper building. The two things that might do, one, it just created a vacancy at that $2,200 price point. So that's nice. Someone could move in and take that. Um, and the other thing is it, it just increases, I guess the two ways to put it, it increases the supply of units at about that price point, which you would think would push prices down. Or you could just say even more generally, like it kind of loosens the market at that $2,200 yep. price point. So it's, it's going to help out there. It's not just helping out the people that can afford the $3,000 apartment. It's also going to affect people at this like slightly lower band of $2,200. Right. And from there you can just keep doing the same thing. And you can say, okay, the person who moved into the $2,200 apartment came from an apartment that cost $1,800. And now you're getting closer to something that, you know, the median income could reasonably afford. Um, And, you know, you you keep iterating still and you say, okay, where does this chain go? Does it eventually reach places that are actually, you know, like, like in the bottom quartile of the MSA rents or something like that? And what I do in the paper is use this pretty cool migration data where I can see like exactly where people move, like between which addresses. And Mm -hmm. I try to build out this example that I just gave you in the actual data and actually look at people living in new, real new buildings and say, okay, where did they move from? And then find the people living in the old apartments of the people now living in the new building and say, okay, where did they come from? Mm -hmm. And I can keep tracking that chain and I can show you that it does look like like this chain gradually moves into cheaper and cheaper areas. And because of that, it's going to kind of suck out some of the demand for, you know, say a median income area, and it's going to make housing there a little bit cheaper. Yeah. I can't believe, okay, I can believe it because you're telling me and I trust you, but I, I find it amazing that you were able to do this with data. You know, like I can, I can follow the concept. I could I could maybe like draw a map for myself on a whiteboard, but like actually going into R or Stata and like producing this just blows my mind clear off. Well, so I didn't actually, in some ways, the data provider is like idiosyncratically good at preparing the data for this project because yeah. uh, they make this data to like, worst case scenario, sell to some, you know, spam company that's going to send pizza coupons to your house. So they really want the mailing addresses to be good. And when the mailing addresses (laughs) are really good, that makes it really easy for me to like merge and say, okay, who's living in this apartment now? And all of the street addresses match exactly. So that's a little Mm. nerdy detail for you there. And you're and I think there's like 52,000 
individuals or moves or something in this sample. It's a large number, right? Yes. It's not like a couple hundred. I have 12 cities, not including LA, sorry. And there's, I think I get about 700 buildings and about 50,000 people living in those buildings. Yeah. And uh, Shane, can I just clarify one one point um, just to make sure that that folks are following along here? This is this is a not restricting moves within a narrow geography or a neighborhood, right? We started talking about neighborhoods in the prior paper. This is people can kind of be coming from anywhere, right? In these in these moves, or is there a particular way that you restricted geography? Yeah, so it's this is not about neighborhoods. This is about like a, a metro area. So right. I'm, I'm finding, and I should say what I find is that these chains pretty frequently do actually reach low-income areas. Mm-hmm. And one thing I find is that these chains also tend to spread out pretty widely across a metropolitan area. So even if mm-hmm. you put up an apartment in downtown LA, this chain is still going to hit the suburbs because eventually someone from the suburbs is going to move into one of the apartments in this chain. And what happens after like five or six rounds of this is that the people in this chain start to be pretty representative of, you know, the L.A. metropolitan area. So the percent from the suburbs starts to look like the percent of the L.A. area that's from the suburbs. The percent that are below median income starts to get close to 50. So that that's sort of what happens as you keep going. Yeah, this sort of illustrates how, I mean, here in L.A., I think the city of L.A., which is, you know, at the at the heart of it, probably produces, I guess, 70 or 80% of the housing, even though we're only 40% of the population. And so it kind of illustrates how, how much work we're doing for the rest of the county to keep right. prices affordable. Not that we're doing right. enough and not that prices are staying affordable, but you know, these other cities are kind of riding our coattails to some extent. And I, I, I want to be clear that the, what we're really talking about here, this concept, is this concept of filtering. And this is, mm. you know, where homes yeah. become more affordable as they age. And there's a paper by Lou McManus and Yiannopoulos recently published where they find that housing in cities that build a lot tend to, the, the older homes tend to filter down to lower income households in those cities. But in cities that build very little, including LA, they actually filter up. And your paper helps explain, I think, the mechanism for that, how when new housing is built, some people move into it from older homes and those older homes become available to someone else. A concern I often hear, I think we've all heard, is that new housing is really just attracting people from somewhere else, from other states, from other metro areas, maybe even from other countries and just parking their money or whatever. And so it's not really opening up more affordable homes locally. How does your paper respond to that concern? What does the migration data say about that? Starting with just my paper, I find that about 67% of people in the new buildings come from the same metro area. So Mm. people certainly move from other areas, but it's it's not like the dominant thing. And the other thing is that, you know, if you build a new, put up a new building in LA, some people are going to move from Cincinnati or whatever, but a lot of those people were going to move to LA anyway. Right. So you're still reducing you know, the pressure on the housing market. I think you even had a tweet about this, Shane. Like if you look at old buildings in LA, 30% of the people moving to them came from outside the area anyway, right? It's not just a new building thing. I was asking this question knowing the answer. This is a secret (laughs) for all of our our listeners. (laughs) Wait, are are you saying- I admit it. (laughs) Are you saying that all of your tweets, Shane, um, are are, uh, 100% uh, correct? (laughs) They're all prepped for podcasts, actually. Excellent. 
I, but that's but that's so important, right? I mean, like sixty seven percent is a big number, and then and then we will never know what the thirty three percent would have done had the building not been built, right? But we have some pretty strong uh, reasons to believe that at least some of the thirty three percent are going to move into that city or metropolitan area anyway, and they're going to want housing, right? And then they're coming for your existing housing <laughs> if you can afford a market rate housing unit that was just built you can afford most things and so price is probably not going to be the thing that that keeps you from from making that move for sure uh there was one other aspect of that i feel like it's important to reiterate the other point you made evan and that i actually yeah i just posted about i think a day or two ago how 67 percent might actually seem kind of low to some people like just depending on where you're coming from but the reality is that it's the same percent as people moving into older units. They're very similar from from the data that I dug up. So it's not as though market rate housing, new market rate housing is is attracting people at a higher or at least a significantly higher rate. Yeah, the other I, I do. I just this point drives me nuts. So I, I want to talk about it more. <laughs> it's like the people in Boston think that if they put up a new building, all the people from L.A. are going to move into it. And the people in L.A. Mm-hmm. think if they put up a new building, all the Boston people are going to move into it. And it's just total nonsense. Right. So it's like of course, people are going to come from the same metropolitan area. And the vacant, like, parking money thing, like, surely Russian oligarchs mm. occasionally do park money in a New York City condo. Like, surely that happens. But I'm from Milwaukee. And, you know, I can go read the comments on a new apartment building in, like, kind of a scruffy area. And people will be like, oh, you know, these are just going to be vacant investor units. And I'm like, well, first of all, this is a rental building. And like, <laughs> wow. yeah. Second of all, like the oligarchs don't want to pay to tear in, you know, Milwaukee. Like <laughs> no. it's, it's just become this really dominant thing. And it's because those buildings on billion, Billionaire's Row are really tall. Like that's yeah. the reason it's so salient in people's minds. But it's like not a big it's just not a big thing. Yeah, yeah, I I. I feel exactly the same. I'm constantly making that point about people are going to move where they're going to move. And the idea that the fact that a city built this new shiny building is going to be the thing that causes me to move there. Like, that's what I'm looking for first and foremost, as opposed to I just got accepted into a new school or got a new job. And, you know, after making that decision to or or being pretty sure I'm going to move, then I look for housing. It's usually, mm-hmm. I think, one of the later steps in the process as opposed to the first step. Yeah, I totally agree. The one caveat I will say, and I, I sort of try to deal with this in my paper a little bit, is, you know, if you built enough housing in San Francisco that all of a sudden San Francisco had prices that looked like Chicago, you probably would see more people move there. Oh, yeah. yeah. So there's sort of this tension between like, definitely like this one new building that you're fighting over is not going to yeah. do this. If you totally reform San Francisco you probably would get some more people there that would eat up some of the benefits. But in order to actually attract those new people, it also has to mean that the prices did go down enough to attract them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, which is good. Right. So you're <laughs> yeah, getting some Yeah, <laughs> which ho- yeah, hopefully a lot of, we can see that a lot of people would benefit from that redu- reduction in prices. And, and, and then I think, you know, speaking specifically to like, what a lot of people in San Francisco probably worry about these days on housing is that um, you would stop a lot of people from leaving the the metropolitan area because housing is becoming so expensive. Certainly, there's a big problem 
or there's a hesitancy for a lot of people to want to move there, even if they get a great job because of housing costs. But then, you know, we know that there's a lot of people that are leaving the the uh, metropolitan area or having to leave San Francisco um, to move to more far flung places in the in the metropolitan area. And that, of course, itself is like this big displacement problem, which I think motivates a lot of a lot of, you know, where we started this conversation about, you know, what happens at at the neighborhood level and and in terms of you know questions of gentrification and uh, uh, rent uh, growth. Totally. Not to drag this out too far, but I feel like we're all we're all feeling this topic. <laughs> um, and I, one more thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, well, so Evan, you're an economist, so I, I don't, I don't, probably don't even need to ask how you feel about rent control. But I'm pretty pro rent stabilization, at least, and I feel like that's this is something that's often overlooked too. Is that you know, if you like the effects of rent stabilization, one of which is that people are not forced away by rising prices you know, relative to a status quo where that didn't exist, it means you're holding on to more people and presumably basically the same number of people still want to move there. And so you have to make room for those people because you don't have these other ones leaving. And so, you know, it's whatever your feelings on rent stabilization, if you if you do support it, you kind of have to support more housing too if you want to accommodate the people who, who want to move here for any reason or even just form their own household. You know, I think that's an overlooked aspect of all of this that, a lot of the growth happening in cities is just people being born here and eventually wanting to create their own household. It's not all people coming from New York and, you know, St. Paul. Yeah. <laughs> Those two cities. It's funny. Um, you know, the Kalamazoo housing market is very different than the San Francisco housing market, but I've been working with, you know, various people that do housing services in Kalamazoo and, you know, they're trying to use, help people use vouchers or help people use various rent assistance to get a rental unit. And I think because that area is just small, you know, it's maybe 200,000 people in in the county. Mm -hmm. You can sort of like see the big picture a little more. And, you know, these housing, Mm. um, I don't don't want to call them housing providers because I feel like that's like our landlord joke word now. (laughs) Um, the, The social service providers like very much see like, look, you can, dump more money into these programs. But the problem right now is we don't have enough units to get these people into them. Like mm-hmm. they might be able to cover the price of it, but you know, we, we just don't have the supply. So like we, we do need to build rental units. Um, yeah. And I think in bigger cities, sometimes it's like so hard to feel like you have a handle, you know, on the housing market and the whole thing to really see that. Cause a lot of things are going to show up on Zillow. Whereas in a small city like Kalamazoo, you might actually like scroll through the possible listings on like two pages or something and it becomes much more apparent. Mm -hmm. And a question I think I want to make more of a standard for all of our our interviews here is what do you think is the most legitimate criticism of, you know, either both of these papers, either one, you know, maybe we already covered it, but I feel like it's important to address the the critiques because there's always, you know, good ones to, to respond to. Totally. Um, so with, uh, this migration chain paper that we just talked about, I think Mike kind of alluded to the critique, you know, take for example, the 33% of people that moved from another metro area to the building in LA, we're never going to know what they would have done if you didn't put up that building. And that critique applies throughout when you trace out one of these chains, because you can say, okay, someone moved to the $3,000 a month unit from the $2,000 a month unit. 
but maybe they would have done that anyway, even if we hadn't built the new building. And I try to do a few things to take care of that, but they're all kind of you know, like, we're, we're never going to know. So I'm sort of like taking mm-hmm. guesses and trying to say, here's an upper bound. Here's the highest I think this rate of new household formation could be. Mm-hmm. So I try to be clear about those caveats in the paper. Um, on the paper about uh, like the neighborhood effects of new housing, I mean, I think really generally, it's just, it's a quasi experiment. It's happening out there in the wild. You're sort of like drawing circles on maps. There's a lot going on. It's in a big, mm. messy city. So it's just, yep. there's kind of a limit in my mind to like how, you know, none of these studies is going to be perfect. So I'm happy a lot of people are working on this question now. Uh, and the other thing is that this paper concerns, you know, these pretty big rental apartment buildings. And I don't think yeah. you should apply it to like building a new duplex or renovating mm-hmm. something. I, I think that's different and should be thought about differently. Yeah. And and I actually want to go back. I'm sorry. I just remembered anytime we talk about this kind of stuff, people will sometimes want to assume the worst intentions with, uh, you know, what the takeaway is. And I just want to read an entire paragraph of of your first paper here to make it clear that you you're you're actually thinking about the context. And it's not just like build market rate housing anywhere under any circumstance Mm -hmm. and it will be good. And so what you and your co-authors say on this is you lead with talking about the the impacts of market rate construction, but then you say, quote, however, there are a few reasons for caution. First, our findings are specific to the large market rate apartments and strong market cities that we study, and effects could differ for other types of housing or other areas if amenity effects depend on local context. Second, we are only able to follow outcomes for three years after building completion, though we provide evidence that longer run effects are likely similar to our estimates. Finally, and my note, I think this is the most important part, continuing to quote, the actual implementation of reforms that increase housing supply requires changing complicated zoning and land use regulations. Policymakers should keep in mind that the particulars of those changes could affect where housing is built, for example, in vacant lots or through demolition of existing affordable housing, end quote. But I think that's just really important that you're not saying tear down a 10-unit affordable building to replace it right. with a 14-unit market rate building. It matters, you know, where you build, who is affected. All of these things matter. Presumably building in higher income neighborhoods will have fewer potential negative effects than lower. So just wanted to state that clearly. Mike, did you have anything to add? No, I, I that's good. I, I appreciate that. Um, and, you know, as 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 both of you were talking, you know, it, I just, I'm constantly thoughtful of like, you know, what people want to know is like, how is this building going to affect my neighborhood? Right. And if, and especially if you're, you're, uh, you're, you're in a neighborhood that is, has seen, uh, hasn't seen a lot of investment in for many, many years, you know, there, your, uh, your neighborhoods of, you know, concentrated uh disadvantage um especially like they're very wary of like outside investment and their intentions but like it doesn't matter how great our studies like we can't tell people what the future holds um in their neighborhood necessarily um almost no matter what happens like as as evan pointed out like there's a lot going on in these in these neighborhoods and and these circles on the map that he draws and 
And these are just, you know, very messy processes at the at the end of the day. And we're studying usually like average effects. And, you know, this is amazing work that Evan and his colleagues have done. Um, and we need more of it to have more and more context where we see these kinds of outcomes play out. Right. Yeah, totally. I mean, that I think that's really important. And it's it's a benefit of the way the housing system is set up now. Well, I mm-hmm. should say that the hyper local nature of the mm-hmm. housing system now can be good for addressing concerns like that, because a lot of times the approval runs through, you know, the local city council member or something like that. There's a lot of community stuff it, it, that has drawbacks sometimes. But I think it's also good because it people tend to be considering these things in context. Mm-hmm. We hope so. And so as we're closing up here, is there anything about these papers that we missed you you want to address? No, I, I think those were you gave great summaries, and I'm happy to have the chance to talk about them a little more. Cool. Is there anywhere uh, you'd like our listeners to go to read any of your other work or or follow your uh, are, are you tweeting or anything? <laughs> I don't tweet too much. I have a Twitter. I don't really tweet on it. Good for you. <laughs> Um, I do have, if you want to see my stuff, uh, you can just Google me and go to my website and I, I put my papers up on there. So they're pretty easy to find. Great. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. This was really, really interesting. We appreciate having you on here. Great. Thank you for having me. Thanks, Evan. That's it for the UCLA Housing Voice podcast this time. Thank you again to Evan Mast and the Upjohn Institute for joining us for such a great conversation. We've got Evan and his co-authors' papers in the show notes, as well as a few other articles mentioned during our chat. We didn't mention it during the interview, but Mike Manville, Mike Lenz, and I published a summary of multiple recent working papers that tackle this question of supply effect versus demand effect at the neighborhood level, and we've provided a link to that in the show notes as well. The UCLA Lewis Center is on Facebook and Twitter, and our website is lewis.ucla.edu. And Mike and I are on Twitter at MC underscore Lens and at Shane D. Phillips. And one last time, if you like the show, don't forget to give us a rating. Just that one thing. It's all we ask. Thanks. Bye. Bye.